Welcome to Saturday Morning Inspection. I'm Nick Rudman, joined as always by the man who knows his way around a hairbrush, Andrew Mize. We are not your typical big sports talk show with the big budgets, the fancy suits, and the hot takes. We got to make up for it by working ridiculously hard, being ridiculously smart, and being ridiculously good looking. That's right, Nick. And because we are not backed by the big sports media, we need you, the viewers, help. Yes, you, whether you're listening on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, uh, checking us out on Twitter, Facebook, whatever it may be. We could greatly use any uh, support you can give us. Uh, just a like, a comment, s- subscribe on YouTube. All of that stuff helps us out a ton. On YouTube, Apple, Spotify, we're at Saturday Morning Inspection. On Facebook, Twitter, SMI Football Show. And as always, you can get all of our socials at our website, smishow.com. Nick, this is our second live stream, and I think it's already better than the first. We were able to add our intro in there, get the Christmas spirit rolling, and uh, I think it's I think it's going to be a, a good one today. We have a lot of good talk, a lot of good football news, so without any further ado, let's get into it. Um, our first topic today, we're going to recap some stuff that we, uh, some games from this past week. Uh, would you like to get into the first one? Yeah, let's go right into it. First things first, how about those Ravens? You and I were both there. Big division win, Sunday night football, prime time. You and I were both at M&T Bank Stadium. That was a big time win for the Baltimore Ravens, but big time defeat for the Cleveland Browns, mainly by Baker Mayfield. Cleveland did everything they wanted to do defensively. They forced Lamar Jackson into four interceptions. They held the Ravens to one touchdown and only 16 points at home in a pretty nice weather game. It wasn't like a real rainy, cloudy, stormy day or anything like that. And they still lost. Baker Mayfield had a bad fumble, only threw one touchdown. And even though that touchdown was a little iffy on the, on the call wise. And I think the big question going around right now is, is this the end of Baker Mayfield as a Cleveland Brown? I gotta think that it is. Uh, I don't. All right, here's here's what I'm thinking. Okay, I think maybe if he comes back for like ten mil a year, they keep him. But you can't like what you're seeing. Like, yeah, his wife says, "What tough it out." He he's so banged up. He literally dropped a ball. Like he was holding on to it to throw the pass, and he drops it. Like drops a fumble. Like how much worse could you get? Well, it, like you said, it's bad enough that he's playing poorly is that now there's follies coming into it, right? Like the, the bad fumble, which they gave, I think, uh, away the, the forced fumble. But like you said, it just flew right out of his hands. And look, you brought up Baker Mayfield's wife. You got more drama in Cleveland. You got Kareem Hunt's dad joining the social media bashing of, Cle- of uh, Baker Mayfield saying Baker is afraid to throw the football. I don't know if Baker's afraid. That's not really his MO and his personality, but his execution is not there. I mean, we were there at the game. Baltimore was trying to force Baker to throw the ball down the field. They played with one safety high most of the game. You know, they were stacking the box to stop the run game, and Baker could not take advantage of it at all. I think his only offensive plays were like three maybe big strikes to Jarvis Landry. Like, they got like 20, 30 yards. Outside of that, they couldn't run the ball, even though Calais Campbell wasn't playing in the middle of the field. Uh, they couldn't pass the ball, even though we're missing like three corners and a safety. Uh, they couldn't do anything effective on offense. Now, their defense played great. Uh, hats off to them. Lamar addressed it. He needs to clean up his play. I don't think he was at 100% when he was playing this week. Uh, he looked like a, a shell of himself, but even then, he was still able to pull out a couple of spectacular plays. Uh, 
spectacular, but not as spectacular as Mark Andrews, who made one of the most incredible catches I've ever seen. And like you said earlier, uh, the only touchdown that the Browns were able to get on the Ravens' shell of a defense was uh, the most questionable touchdown I've ever seen. I'm pretty positive it hit the ground. They replayed it in the stadium like 70 times. And then uh, the refs, if the refs weren't in that game, I think it's a much different ball game. Yeah, we'll we'll talk more about the refs a little bit later, but I, I agree. I felt like Cleveland just wasted opportunity after opportunity. Um, Jackson did everything he could in the fourth quarter to ice the game, which is credit to him and, and credit to the Ravens defense for the job they do, uh, they did. But, you know, you talked about Landry. I mean, Landry had over 100 yards receiving. He was winning a lot of those one-on-one matchups. I felt a lot of Cleveland receivers, this was going to be a favorable matchup for them. You're looking at Peoples-Jones, their other wide receiver. Landry had over 100 yards. You know, you're looking at Njoku, you're looking at a lot of those guys. I mean, they had uh, just a lot of opportunities, a lot of favorable matchups, but they couldn't get the job done. And and I think that begins with Baker Mayfield. I mean, this team is 6-6 six and six with maybe a top 10 roster in the NFL. They've got superstars everywhere. You know, they've got uh, Chubb, they got Hunt, they've got a good offensive line, they got Landry, two good tight ends with Hooper and Njoku. Great defense, Miles Garrett, of course, Denzel Ward in the back end. This team should be, you know, maybe even competing for a number one seed instead of right now they're out on the outside of the playoffs looking in. I, I don't think it looks good for Cleveland this year, and I certainly don't think it looks good for Baker. Uh, but moving on to another quarterback who's running into some trouble lately, and that's Matt Stafford for Los Angeles Rams. Oh, yeah. uh, suffered a, a, a tough loss, big loss uh, on the road against the Packers. Third straight game at the pick six, third straight game with multiple turnovers. You know, do you think Matt Stafford, the Rams, this was your MVP pick. Do you think he turns it around or, or do you think they're in big trouble there in L.A.? Um, the more I think about it, the more uh, I'm not so sure anymore. Uh, the, the, the longer it almost reminds me of Sam Darnold moving to the Panthers. At first he was hot and Matt Stafford is better than Sam Darnold. I'm not comparing them, but he was very hot to begin with. I think they're a good team. They've played some very good teams in the last few weeks. Um, but he seems to not, you know, maybe it's his time. Maybe they, they made an effort for him, but uh, I, don't, I don't think the Rams are loving it right now. I don't think that they want, they're happy they've traded away every first round pick for the next 10 years. Um, Matt Stafford just doesn't look like what I thought he would be, especially... They added OBJ, but after Woods left, that's really bigger than them adding OBJ is Woods leaving. After Woods is out for the season, um, I don't know if they can pull it off anymore. I'm not so sure. Well, you hit on a couple points there. One is how much the Rams have traded away draft picks, and they're really all in this year. And I've never seen a team as committed to winning right now as the Los Angeles Rams are. And they'd be a wild card team if the playoffs started today. They're two, uh, two games behind Arizona. You know, they, they've already lost to um, Green Bay, obviously, this past weekend. So any chance of winning a tiebreaker for playoff seating is, is most likely gone there. I, I mean, this team is 100% committed to get a number one seed. They, they need it. Matt Stafford has never won a playoff game in his career. Do you think he goes on the road in the playoffs and makes a big run? I, I don't think so. Not you playing know? like this. Definitely not playing like this. And even if he was playing better, I think it just gets tougher in the playoffs, right? Bad weather. You know, you got to go to Green Bay, maybe, you know, uh, you know, situations like that that aren't favorable for a guy in Stafford who spent most of his career in a dome and is now an out uh, in Los Angeles. 
And I think the other side is this is the first time, you know, starting about a month ago that Matt Stafford has been a front runner in probably 12 years. You know, with Detroit, if you had a bad month, no one cared because Detroit every month's a bad month. You know, that's the expectations. That's where the bar is. Right. But now that he had a great start and the Rams had a great start and he's playing for a better team and a better coach and definitely a, a better roster. Now the expectation is, look, you can't have bad months. You, gotta have, you, you can't even really have bad games. It's a tough NFC right now, really competitive, especially at the top. You, you, you have to be able to play consistently week in and week out. And I think he's finding, and I think the Rams are finding actually that Stafford's inconsistencies that haunted him with Detroit are, are starting to come out and show themselves. And I think it's a problem in LA. I mean, they were probably hoping Beckham could come in and, and maybe lighten the load a little bit to replace Woods, but he hasn't so far. And I, th- I think the Rams, I still think they're a playoff team. I think they're too good a roster to not be, and, and McVay's a good coach. But I, I think their hopes of making a deep playoff run are probably dashed because they were all in for a high seed. You know, they, they can't oh, yeah. go on the road. I don't see them going to Green Bay and winning. And, and I think that hope is gone now. And they got a battle just to make sure they, you know, they don't fall deeper out of the playoff push. In my head right now, I've been think I've been thinking about it as you've been talking. Who do I see as MVP runners for this season? Put us on the spot. Um, in my head, and this isn't who will get it, but this is who I think deserves it. Right now, Jonathan Taylor from the Colts, then Aaron Rodgers, maybe Lamar. I don't know. Lamar played really bad last week, but he's still winning the games. Yeah, I think so. It depends. The Colts have to make the playoffs. I think if the Colts make the playoffs and Taylor keeps putting up the numbers he is, I think he's going to win it in the landslide. But if the Colts miss the playoffs and they're six and six right now, just like uh, Cleveland, I, I think you got to go with Rodgers, right? This is a guy who, you know, with this isn't the, the Green Bay is a solid team, but they're not an overwhelming offensive team, right? They're not, they're not Kansas City. They're not, uh, um, Arizona, they're not LA that went all in this year with a lot of, lot of weapons offensively and big free agent signings. That's one of the reasons Rogers almost didn't come back. Instead he comes and he manages the games extremely well. He's fighting through the injury. Now I think he should be the MVP. I think the whole thing with him missing the game with the COVID and all that stuff, I think no one will vote for him. So I think Taylor will win it, but I think right now Rogers is probably the MVP of the NFL. Is there another quarterback I'm not thinking about who's on the list? If Mahomes gets hot and wins like their last six games, he'll always be up there. Um, he just did so bad at the beginning. It's like- yeah, but it's it's such a late season award. Teams, you know, they may forget that. And and you and Brady's all always lurking, right? I think he's either first or second in the NFL in touchdown passes. So if, if the Bucks get hot, and finish strong too. There's just it's it's still relatively early for the MVP talk. And of course, all it takes is one guy getting hurt and it just throws the whole thing out for a loop. But I, I think right now Taylor's the front runner, but if he has a couple slow games or the Colts miss the playoffs, I, I think you'll see a quarterback. Doubt it's Rodgers, although it probably should be. Maybe a Mahomes or a Brady. Take what about award. a Cooper Cup? Uh, Cooper Cup's interesting, but I, I think it's it's so hard for a wide receiver, right? Just he'd have to even as as much of a record breaking pace, and he's been on this season with the with both receptions, yards, and and even touchdowns in a lot of ways. I, I think he would have to just be absolutely bonkers and Stafford would have to look terrible, right? Cause even when, when Randy Moss broke records in 2007 with the Patriots, they still gave the award to Brady yeah. because even though Randy Moss was extremely dominant, you know, they always defer to the quarterbacks a little bit. So if, if Cooper cup has a torrid pace and keeps it going, I think Stafford will end up, you know, having a better chance than he will. That's true. That is true. Um, 
ex- speaking of breaking, not records, but news, uh, would you like to move on to our next segment? Yeah, let's do it. So normally this is a big, uh, big pro football NFL show, but there's been big news in the world of college that we got to talk about, and it affects the pro game a little bit. Um, so Lincoln Riley, formerly head coach of the Oklahoma Sooners football team, has found himself taking a job at the University of Southern California as their new head coach. Meanwhile, Notre Dame head coach Brian Kelly has left his team fighting for a playoff berth in the college football playoff and headed down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to take on the LSU job. And before we get into all that, this brought up the, the tie into the NFL is the fact that Cliff Kingsbury, right, this is a guy who coached in the Big 12 at Texas Tech, competed against Lincoln Riley, very good friends with Lincoln Riley. They run very similar offenses, know each other very well. Oklahoma's job is now available, and he has been linked to it. The last time I've seen a college coach linked to a job like this probably was Nick Saban with Alabama about a decade and a half ago. And we all saw how that turned out. Uh, Cliff Kingsbury faced a lot of comments from the media about this. You know, most coaches, they say no comment or not going to address that at all. Just trying to win this weekend. He just completely ignored the questions outright. Didn't really answer it one way or the other. Raised a lot of eyebrows. Do you think Kingsbury is potentially going to take this Oklahoma job? I think possibly because, like, where did he excel the most in his career at? Was that Oklahoma, I would say? Or no, he was at um, Texas he was Tech. He at Texas Tech. Texas Tech, excuse me. Yeah, he, did, he, he didn't do great there. His claim to fame was probably uh, coaching Patrick Mahomes, looking back on it. And then um, uh, his the Oklahoma is like a big calling card school, uh, you know, you're gonna you're gonna do well there. You're gonna get the recruits there. You're gonna get a better Kyler Murray. You're gonna get your Baker Mayfield. You're gonna get uh, anybody and everybody who comes through there. Sam Bradford, whoever it may be. But um, I think the big the big thing here is is Kyler Murray slated to play this weekend, or is he still out? Or they have the bye this week. Yeah, they've got the buy. So he, I, I imagine he comes back next week. Has to. What, what do you think? You're just just to try and convince Kingsbury to stay, or do you think if that's... he doesn't come back next week and this injury seemingly more uh, serious than they've let on, I think it's a hundred percent he's like on. He's gonna probably take that job because I think he was banking on having a big season with Kyler this year. And I think that that se- this season has slowed down. And if he gets a better offer, he's probably going to take it. Because if they end up playing much worse, I don't think he gets another opportunity this big. Yeah, that's a good point. Just got corrected there by Derek. It's not Arizona's buy. It's uh, it's actually actually playing this week. So thanks. So last for, uh, week was the buy. So he has to play this week. Bye. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, thanks for the uh, feedback. We appreciate all the commenters watching us live. Don't forget to comment, like, subscribe, as always. Yeah, look, I think uh, I think Kingsbury, he's a guy that's all about him, right? He wants to be seen as this offensive genius and guru and wants to be well-known in football circles. And even though Arizona's doing well, no one's really talking about him, right? I mean, it's been kind of a quiet year for, for Arizona. Most of the talk has been about Murray's injury. And I, I wonder if going to Oklahoma and going to the SEC is tempting for him. I wonder if he thinks this is his chance to, uh, to maybe step out and be noticed more. Because I think, he'd, as weird as it sounds, he'd probably get more notoriety uh, going to Oklahoma and competing against Nick Saban and competing against now Brian Kelly and, and Lane Kiffin than he does in Arizona. And I'll throw one other tidbit in here that I think is interesting. 
right? The closest conference to the NFL in terms of competitiveness week in and week out is obviously the SEC. It's essentially, you know, almost NFL rosters week in and week out. So Kingsbury already knows that's what he's going up against right now with Arizona, right? They NFL team, they play NFL schedules, they face NFL rosters. He doesn't see it as much of a jump negatively to go to college and have to compete in the SEC. A lot of coaches don't want to go to the SEC because of that, right? That's one of the reasons why a lot of people think Lincoln Riley left. He didn't want to compete against the SEC talent week in and week out at Oklahoma. So I wonder if that's influencing Kingsbury's thinking. It's like, you know, hey, I'm already used to these tough schedules and these battles week in and week out. You know, why don't I go and just keep playing that and I get a chance to get noticed more, get on TV more. And frankly, he'd probably make more money at Oklahoma and have a less stressful lifestyle than he does at Arizona. What do you think coaches think? All right. So he's dipped his foot in the NFL water. I'd say he was mildly successful. He hasn't won anything or done anything crazy, but he's done okay. He's executed his game plan at Arizona. It's been successful, whether he had great players or if it was his scheme. But now that he's done that, do you think that the NFL is the end-all be-all of football coaching? Or if you get on a good college team, is that good enough? If you can make good money and win in college ball, is that the best job? So I think it depends on personality. You look at a guy like Steve Spurrier, right? He's a guy who liked being more of a celebrity. He liked his off seasons, big golfer, things like that. So if you're like just a general football junkie and you love it kind of stuff, the, the day-to-day 365, you know, 24-7 job, you know, kind of like a Bill Belichick kind of guy, then, then that's sort of what you love. And you kind of love that because you have no off days. You don't have to worry about recruiting. But college is a, is a little bit more relaxed. You get a little bit more of the festive atmosphere. It's, you know, it's a college campus and things like that. Um, I think Kingsbury, right, he's a young guy. And I think he likes being a young guy. And the NFL is kind of a, it's kind of a grinder's league. It's sort of like a, when you're a head coach, you're almost like a corporate CEO a little bit, right? You're, you're kind of up in an office all day. You're first one in, last one out all the time. You know, it's a lot of press conferences, a lot of media commitments. It's very, very corporate, very tough. Um, whereas college is a little bit more of a festive environment. I mean, and let's be honest, Lane Kiffin found a lot of that in Ole Miss and Florida Atlantic before that too. A lot of coaches like that. I already talked about Steve Spurrier. I mean, I, I think that's kind of drawing him potentially a little bit. And, and, and frankly, I think, uh, I think Kingsbury is probably frustrated with the fact that, you know, the NFL is tough because you lose so much. You can be really, really good and still lose four or five games a year. If he goes to Oklahoma, you lose twice a year and that's a disaster. Oh, yeah. So it, it's a, it's almost a going to Oklahoma allows him the ability to kind of enjoy, you know, win more, don't have to worry so much about the weekend and week out. Like Oklahoma, obviously you don't want to get upset against a team like Kansas, but that's almost a bye week, right? You play D1AA teams, you know, that's almost a bye week, you know, except for South Carolina against the Citadel oh, yeah. a number of years ago. But we'll not talking. talk about that too much. But uh, yeah, so it's almost a bye week. You don't get that in the NFL. Right. Every even the worst team can beat anybody week in and week out. Like the Ravens needed that miracle kick by Tucker just to beat Detroit. Right. That it that's not uncommon. You know, in in college football, Kingsbury doesn't have to worry about those tough week in and week out, uh, week in and week out matchups all year long. He gets he goes to Oklahoma. He's guaranteed nine, ten wins a year. Um, even in the SEC, I think I think they're going to be a top contender. I think he's really uh, I think he's really considering it. Yep. But the main thing we have here is. No matter what he does, he's got to have a little bit more class than Brian Kelly had leaving Notre okay. Dame. Uh, let's let's take a look at this. I'll read this. Uh, Brian Kelly has reportedly 
uh, been linked uh, to, is it the new um, LSU, LSU yeah. job? Yeah. And to, I guess for some reason, he told his publicist that, okay, you can go ahead and confirm that I've accepted the job before speaking to any of his players. And in doing so, he's thought it was acceptable to send them a text while he's on his way back to come tell them what's going on. I'll read the text for you very briefly. It says, Ben, let me first apologize for the late night text and most importantly for not being able to share the news with you in person that I'll be leaving Notre Dame. I'm flying back to South Bend tonight to be able to meet you in the morning, but the news broke late today. I'm sorry you found out through social media or news reports. I'll have more to share when we meet tomorrow at 7 a.m. First of all, Meeting at 7 a.m. Isn't that kind of punishment? You can do it a little bit later. But uh, but for now, just know that my love for you is limitless. I'm so proud of all of you and the, all that you've accomplished. Our program's elite because of your hard work our, and commitment, and I know that you will continue. I'll share more in the morning when we meet again. Again, my sincerest apologize for not being the one to share the news directly with you, Coach Kelly. Yeah, so this is very, very low class. So first thing I want to hit on, 7 a.m. for coaches, especially in college, they think that's probably three hours late for players. Coaches will schedule the crap out of things at 5, 5.30 in the morning. They do it all the time. It's extremely annoying. It's just what they do. But um, th- this is very, very low class for Kelly. I mean, so the one thing I'll compare it against is my senior year after my junior year, our head coach at the time, he was rumored to be leaving. He'd been linked to being uh, a coordinator at some other uh, schools in the past, and he was rumored to be potentially leaving again. Um and, you know, obviously the rumors are flying around and you get called to a team meeting. You, you kind of know what's going to happen, but, you know, you go to it and, you know, our, our coach told us, hey, I took a job at Wake Forest. I appreciate everything you're doing. You guys were great. You know, you guys will mean the world to me. And took the time after the meeting to shake people's hands and say goodbye and stuff. And that guy, our, our coach was Kevin Higgins, by the way, you know, really nice guy, at least in terms of being classy and, and upfront with with that kind of thing. Um, and, and that's, I think, the right way to do it. Right. Because the thing with players and you know, it's kind of changing now, but players aren't, aren't paid. They're not compensated. They, they go to a school to play for a coach or a scheme or a system. So a lot of players, let's say you were a redshirt freshman and then you got a little bit of playing time as a sophomore, but you're kind of waiting, you're biding your time because you fit into this coach's scheme and system. And now he's going to up and leave. So now you got a, you got a decision to make. Now, do you up and leave and uproot your entire life, two years of work, or do you try and stick it out with the new regime? And there's a lot of guys who are going to be slated to be big time players, maybe even get a lot of looks, maybe even make it to the next level, who suddenly have their careers just totally flipped because the coach and the scheme they were recruited for, you know, is now gone. Oh, yeah, I can I can see that. And like like you said, uh, maybe you like a Texas Tech, like air raid style of offense, like maybe that's your thing or like, like you know, a guy I think of as a Case Keenum. Case Keenum probably wouldn't have excelled at other colleges like Alabama the way that he did um, in that air raid style of offense that he played. Uh, and like you said, the coach leaves. Like if that coach was to leave overnight, he'd be he'd be screwed. Like there's no – like what are you going to do? Well, you, you have to either transfer, you have to stick it out, and that's tough, right? So there's a lot of people that just – you know, like – not that I was anywhere close to a good player, but there's a lot of people that, you know, you have that competitiveness. Well, heck, I'm going to stick it out and make the best of the situation. I've committed so much time to the school and to this program. Uh, I don't want to leave. And that hurts their playing time, obviously, potentially. And it hurts their, uh, their, any draft prospects they might've had, or you up and leave and you have to transfer, in which case you have to, you're flipping your entire life upside down. You're moving to a new school, new state, new city, all of that. And you're competing again with a new coach that, you really don't know that well, and you have to go through that process anyway. 
So it's just really tough on players. Coaches leaving is really, really bad for players. And this is one of the downsides with college football not playing, not paying players, is that the head coach specifically, and really all the coaches, to them, this is a business. And a lot of jobs are stepping stones to maybe even bigger jobs. But the problem is a player, if like if the quarterback for, you know, let's say Notre Dame, Jack Cohn, let's say he can't sit there today and say, you know what? Uh I'm going to transfer to Alabama because Alabama's calling me because I had a good game or somewhere else. Like that's not the process they can really go through. They can try, but that's not how they're geared because they're not pros, right? That's not how they think they're recruited to go to that school. They want to be there. They choose to go there, but the coaches treat it differently. The coaches are treating it like a business and a career. And that's why a lot of players, this is really bad for them. A lot of players are going to be upset and deservedly so because this is 100% against all the players who went to go play for Kelly and Notre Dame. I mean, what do you do now if you're a guy who really liked the scheme he ran or the program he did and you were committed long term? I mean, you stick it out at Notre Dame or or you go somewhere else. And and there's one other point I want to bring up, too, is that there are a lot of coaches, not all of them, but a lot and a lot of coaching staffs that will put a lot of pressure on players to sacrifice grades and potential majors and minors and things like that. So imagine at some of these schools, especially at big time programs where a coach told you, hey, I don't want you to get this degree or they do a lot of meetings. It's a lot of, it's a lot of, you know, you heard your GPA because you got a lot of activities going on. And then the coach up and leaves two years later and you're stuck there and you're like, well, well, heck, I listened to you, but now my career opportunities are going to get hurt if I wasn't an NFL guy. And if I'm not an NFL guy, my GPA is lower or I have a, I have a lesser degree. It's really a bad situation. It's really unfavorable to the players um, when any time a coach leaves and especially like this. Yeah. I think it's, not a good situation for anybody, and it could be handled a lot, a lot better. There's also something else I'm thinking about, if we're on the same page here, that could definitely be handled a lot better. And we may have some ideas about that. Is there anything else you want to say before we move on there? No, that's good. Let's, uh, let's go move on to our next segment. All right, up next, we have our commentary segment where we are going to give you a few of our ideas of how the NFL refs, which were embarrassingly bad this past Thanksgiving and uh, Thanksgiving weekend, uh, on how they can maybe make some changes. Uh, would you like to go over your idea first, Nick? Yeah, sure. And before that, I'll, I'll give a little bit of background. Absolutely. Uh, Let's talk about uh, the Baltimore that series of events that happened at the game first, if you want to. Yeah. So I, I think I'll, I'll go through that and I'll go through a few examples. And I'll talk my spiel and then we'll, then we'll hit up all the, all our rule suggestions. So at, at the Ravens game, the Baltimore Browns game, um, what had, what had transpired is uh, Baltimore lined up the punt and they had, were you know, the first sequence is they were running a fake punt. So uh, the referee, he goes to the line of scrimmage and he'll walk away after both teams have a chance to substitute. So both teams substitute. They have their punting group on the field for Baltimore, punt return group on the field for Cleveland. Uh, in that case, the referee has to run 20 yards back to be behind the punter. Well, Cleveland was running a fake. So the Brown, the referee runs back. He's about 20 yards back. He hasn't quite blown the whistle for play yet. Um, everyone is ready for play. The Browns snap the ball to get the first down. But the ref says no play because I didn't blow the whistle for play. Look, so, and that's one of those things, uh, that example right there is a good example of how NFL refs are screwing up and, you know, just completely is the fact for them, it's about control at this point, you know, everything was on the up and up. Everyone knew the ball was ready for play. All the offense and defensive linemen were in their stance. Everyone was alert. Everyone was watching. There was no surprise. 
All that had not happened is the ref had not gotten back in his lengthy amount of time. He had kind of jogged back, trotted back a little bit. And he was kind of slow. But because he didn't feel the game was ready to begin, the play was ready to begin, he did not allow what happened to transpire. You know, and that kind of thing is really kind of propagating throughout the NFL. The biggest example we've seen this year is the hit check. Uh, the Steelers-Bears uh, game with Cassius Mars, linebacker for uh, uh, Chicago. Yep, for the Bears, getting a big sack and a pivotal third down. And the ref hit-checking him as he walks off the field, throwing a taunting penalty on Mars for staring at the uh, opposing sideline menacingly. And what that was all about in Corinthians' post-game comments was, I did not like the way he was approaching the Steelers' sideline and the way he was staring. I thought he was doing it in a taunting and menacing manner. What that is code for is referees saying, I don't like the, I don't have control over that guy in that play. And I don't like what he's doing here. And I'm going to throw a flag because I can. And that's what's going on in the NFL these days. So you remember at school, right? So we went to a military college, you you and I, and how that was, you know, with a lot of the, uh, a lot of the cadets, the kids, essentially the college kids were essentially running a lot of the rules. You know how that's usually was like very chaotic, right? Very, very confusing, very disoriented To to say the least, right? Well, that's kind of what the NFL refereeing is now. So Mike Pereira was on Pat McAfee's show and he talked about, you know, the NFL refs to him. Now, Mike Pereira's former head honcho of the NFL officiating. This guy is a guru of NFL refs. He said to McAfee, he's like, you know what? These refs, they are more confusing than ever. You know, no one wants to officiate anymore. Directly quoting, you know, what he's saying there. That is exactly what you would be surprised to hear from a ref. These guys support themselves to the ends of the earth. To have Mike Pereira come out and say that says a lot. But to go back to my Citadel analogy is right. So you got all these refs that are confused. They got all these rules, the new taunting penalties, the new replay system they got going on. So what happens in chaos? We saw this at school, right? When there's a lot of confusion going around, there's usually a couple guys, you know, maybe they're a little sadistic, narcissistic, they're selfish, whatever, that take it upon themselves to take a little control, right? They want to be jerks. They want to be the big man on campus. And we saw that at school, right? You see, there's always a couple jerks that then, you know, take advantage of the situation to just feel like they can be in control. And that's what we're seeing with a lot of these refs, I feel like. I feel like because of all the confusion going along when officiating, that there's a handful of refs that are taking it upon themselves to just, you know, thumb their, uh, their, their put their thumb down on things they don't like in the game because they personally don't feel like those activities belong. Yeah, no matter the cost, they don't care about the repercussions of, like, if it's to screw up the game or anything like that. Uh, which is crazy, um, and I think that there there has to be some serious changes made, and I think we've come up with two pretty good ideas on how we can change it. Um, I'll get into yours first, mainly because it's first on the list. Yeah. But uh, all right, here is Nick's rule change, and do you want me to read it, or do you have it that you can read it? I'll just walk through it first, just so that way it's, it's basically the simple gist of this is, is that at any time, there's two rules here uh, at any time, a coach, and you can do this once per game is pick a referee and an official, you know, line judge, referee, umpire, any one of the officials on the field and say, Hey, he is gone. He can no longer officiate in the game. And then one of the backup refs that they always have backup refs for these games in the NFL has to come in and replace him. Now, this doesn't affect any call currently, right? It can't reverse a call. But the goal of this here is if a coach thinks that, hey, there's a ref out there that's being ridiculous. He's taking the matters into his own hands. For example, after the hit check, I think the Bears and Matt Nagy would have wanted uh, Currenty off the field. 
because he's Absolutely. obviously taking control of the game. He is being ridiculous. You know, so so I think that rule gives that opportunity there. And then the other rule I would add with that is that at any time, if both opposing teams, basically approaching coaches, agree that a ref should be removed, they can remove it. And there's no limit to that. Now, so basically there has to be a channel of communication between the sidelines that would have to be introduced. That could be worked out. Each team could have an official, not really a coach, just in case, you know, a coach would have a buzzer to buzz this official, say, hey, talk to the other guy. I want the line judge removed. And if there's ever an agreement, they can remove them. And the reason I think, I don't think that really corrects the officiating problem per se, but, but it, it gives, gives the, the coaches, coaches and the teams, teams sort of, of a mechanism, mechanism to, to take, take control, control and allows publicly some accountability for these refs, right? Because what do we all hate? These refs can make a bad call or, or just an egregious decision and there's no accountability. No, Tony Carrenti is still a referee in games, right? There's no... There's nothing like stopping him or, or preventing him from refereeing in a game. Maybe the ref, maybe the NFL will decide not to put him in primetime games anymore or something like that, but he's still allowed to officiate and still allowed to be the head official as the referee. I think these kind of rules may give coaches and, uh, and teams at least feel like they have control, right? Because right now there's a feeling of powerlessness. Like look at all these defenders every time they get a roughing the passer for touching the quarterback. They just, what are they supposed to do? They can't do anything. At least with this action, it, it allows teams and, you know, some, some, able, some ability to hold them accountable somehow. I don't think it'll change the calls, but it'll at least make teams kind of like not necessarily punish the refs, but publicly declare, hey, you know, this guy's out of here. This guy's gone. He's hurt in the game. Yeah. And I, like you said, uh, the, not the shaming might not be the right word, but it kind of is the right word. Uh, the embarrassment of being injected from a game may you might like you know think about your words and your deeds feel like uh your your actions were not acceptable for that game uh someone called you out especially your second rule if two coaches agree and you get ejected from the game and i like to think of it that way that the ref gets ejected from the game um you know and i also like to add to your rule i think it should be a zebra colored flag like a challenge flag yeah. that's like zebra colored they just throw that out there so um but yeah, I think it's a pretty cool idea. Uh and I don't I I don't think they'll they'll go for it, but I think it would be really cool to give the coaches a little bit of power to fight back, you know what I mean? Yeah. Obviously their coaches can't just go buck wild and like someone calls a questionable pass interference call, but maybe there's some merit to it. And, ah, get him out of here. Uh might backfire a little bit, but I think it's a pretty cool idea as far well, as that goes. Well, yeah, and the fact that a coach can only remove one by himself, right, kind of says, hey, you can't go crazy with it. And the fact a referee would have to be so bad for both coaches to agree, right, because normally a call benefits one team, obviously. So it would only be if one referee is calling holding on both sides like an idiot for a half would both coaches agree. So it's again, just to give them some sort of ability to do something to respond instead of just screaming at the ref and then the ref still having all control. But this day and age, they might not have enough refs to keep the, the flow going. If the coaches could agree, I think they could agree on a lot of refs being out of the game uh, right now, but that is great. And I think that's a very creative rule. I, I really like your idea to be honest. Uh, but next up, I have my rule change idea. And so here it goes. I'll, I'll read it and then I'll get into it. So the NFL shall put on retainer at least, I just put three, because three seems the appropriate number to have enough, to have a difference. 
but three separate officiating companies or groups, uh, whether they're unions or whatever it is. One company, which I assume will be the, the refs currently, will have the primetime right to games. These refs will be in charge, and I'm, I'm, I'm in my head, it's these games come with extra money if you're refing these games. These are like more high-dollar games to ref. You get the primetime games. You're, you know, 4 o'clock game, Sunday night football, Monday, Thursday. Uh, and you get the rights to ref these games and uh, any games like that. Uh, also, like playoff games, Super Bowls, all, all those kind of things. Thanksgiving Day games. Those all fall into these categories that I've created. And the other companies around you are going to ref the lower tier games. So like a lot of the 1 o'clock games, the other 4 o'clock games that aren't the game of the week or anything like that. Um, maybe preseason games, anything, anything along those lines. So that, that, that lays out the first part. The second part is if the company currently in standing of primetime rights starts to have a decline in performance, increased, uh, you know, like in public embarrassment, there have to be some metric of measuring how well they are refing. Uh, they will lose their contract for primetime the next, the following season. So yes, you'd have to finish out the season, but I think it's the only way that you can do this with any sort of stability. Uh, so they lose the contract and they get relegated, almost like soccer, to the lower tier games. And the highest performing group from the two lower tiers gets promoted. So while you're in the lower tier, it gives you some reason to still be a good ref. You don't want to be. You can't just go out there and be like a bad ref all the time because the best performing group is the one. That gets promoted. So I think it gives them some sort of competition, ability, and a, a drive to want to be better to get to those higher paying games. Yeah, I I, I like that. I kind of like the idea of, of, I think both of us have a similar theme here where there's some accountability, there's some negative if you do something poorly as a referee. I think one of the interesting things about the NFL is that the NFL you know, obviously it's a National Football League, but it's not really in the football business, right? it kind of subcontracts the football side of their business to the teams, you know, and the players and the coaches. There is no NFL employee that plays in a game. There's no NFL employee that coaches in a game. The only NFL employees are the referees on the field. So I kind of like the idea of maybe working kind of, you know, maybe even subcontracting out, which I think a little bit is what you're going here is the referee side of the NFL. Cause the NFL is essentially a, a franchise management company with marketing that does marketing and promotion and things like that. I, I, I think the NFL should potentially kind of get away from managing the referees. Um, and, and maybe this relegation kind of rule here that you talked about, maybe that's a good way to kind of ease them into it a little bit because theoretically, right. No, because no referee is going to want to work for an organization, in the NFL where relegation is a constant threat but if they're like a third party company and they're paid well either way, then maybe that's what this could lead into. I think it's an interesting idea. Well, that that's my point is relegation doesn't – you don't lose all of your money. You just have to stay it's by less. to the lower tier you know, thing, and that gives you – and if you're a good – and here's the thing. This is where the competition and business side of it comes into play. Well, say so you're like the best ref on the lower tier teams, maybe the higher tier team like is like, ah, oh, no, Tony Corinthi sucks. Let's get him out here. Let's let's pull up this guy from the lower tier team to replace him. It you know, 
it is going to give it some refinement. Hopefully, teams you're going to strive, you know, to have the best teams of refs possible, so you can keep that prime time uh, group. Yeah, no, that's a great point, right? You want to incentivize refs to make teams not hate you. As weird as that sounds. Yeah, and that and that's the thing is, you know, I I think it'd be also cool. Then we start like I if this idea gets. Uh, started. I want our own merch for different refs. Different refs wear different color uniforms, all kinds of stuff like that. We can sell these on our website. Uh, any kind of thing like that. I think it'd be pretty cool. Yeah, that'd be good. Uh, synergy, as they say. Exactly. A little exactly. horizontal or integration. But that's 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 good talk, man. You you want to move on to our top five? Uh, sure. Uh, while we I'm getting set up briefly, but I'm already there. So look at me go. Uh, we are ready to get into our top five. I think it's very interesting top five this week. Uh, would you like to talk about what we got going on today, Nick? Yeah, just uh, doing a great job as a co-host here, surprising you with our next graphic segment. But that's why you're the best in the business, because you don't let a bad co-host like me throw you for a loop. You're ready. That's, you're going. You pass Nick the buck right today, to me to keep he says, talking. Hey, can we play the open in the live stream? And I said, you know what? That's probably a good idea. But I don't know how to do it quite yet, but I'll figure it out. And look at that. We figured it out. So you, you're pushing me to be the best version yeah. of myself. Yeah, yeah I, text, I texted you at you know three hours before we go live. Hey, you know what? Let's change everything, and you have 30 minutes to do it. So credit to you. Great job as always. But all right, our top five segment this week is the top five offenses in NFL history. This is going to be a really, really fun segment. Uh, we're ranking the top five offenses, each of us individually, uh, that has ever played in the NFL. I'm going to get us going, Maya, since I'm already talking, then I'll, I'll let you chime in where needed, and then we'll go through your list. Sure. So, all right, number five for me, this one kind of stinks, and i got to say this out loud. This is the 1983 Washington Redskins. So this was Joe Theismann at quarterback. This was John Riggins at running back. Riggins set the NFL record for rushing touchdowns in a year. Uh, with 24 that season. This was the first time in NFL history a team scored 500 points in a season. They absolutely obliterated teams in a very competitive NFC. Remember, this is the Dallas was still good. San Francisco was coming up, up and comer. They'd already won a Super Bowl in 1981. Uh, the Giants were getting better with Lawrence Taylor. This was a very, very tough uh, time in the NFC, and Washington ran right through everybody. It was the most dominant season anyone had seen in NFL history up until a heartbreaking upset loss to uh, the Raiders in the Super Bowl that season. Uh, you know, this was the first team, like I said, to break 500. They were balanced. They ran the ball. They threw the ball. Uh, this was sort of a, uh, a, a sort of an introduction to the offensive age in the 80s, right? Because we had there was the Dwight Clark and the catch in 1981 with the 49ers, but that was sort of new. The 49ers West Coast offense was up and coming. You know, the Redskins with that power football and that play action game with Joe Theismann, they were kind of the first offense explosion in the, in the decade that brought forth uh, modern offensive football. So uh, number four for me, this is the 1998 Minnesota Vikings. This was the world's introduction to Randy Moss. So the Vikings were already a good team and a playoff team. They had Chris Carter, Hall of Fame wide receiver. They had Brad Johnson and Randall Cunningham at quarterback, Robert Smith, great running back. They were an explosive offensive team. They drafted Randy Moss out of Marshall character concerns, well, the only concerns that faced him in the NFL were how many touchdowns were he, uh, that he was going to score. He broke the rookie record, uh, scored 17 that season, led the NFL, 
the Vikings blew through everybody, went 15-1, and one, most dominant offensive team at that time. What made this team so special was that this was the first time that we were introduced to a wide receiver that could just outrun and outjump everybody. Like this had never happened before where a receiver was just better than everybody. There had been like really talented, really good receivers. You know, obviously Jerry Rice is Michael Irvin's of the world, but there was no receiver that's just physically just a better athlete than everybody else on the field. That was Randy Moss. This team was really explosive. They were a dominant team throughout the season. Heartbreaking loss in the 1998 NFC Championship game to the Falcons. But this is still one of the all-time great offenses. Uh, number four on my list. Number three on the top five offenses in NFL history. This is the 1984 Miami Dolphins. This is Dan Marino's second year in the NFL, teaming up with his Marks brothers. This is Mark Clayton and Mark Duper. And what was so special about this team, this was the first time a quarterback had thrown through 40 touchdowns in NFL season. Marino threw 48. The first time a quarterback threw 5,000 yards in season, Marino threw for 5,084. Now, remember, like I said, this was the early 80s. This was kind of the dawn of a major offensive football. Marino's stats were so dominant that it just outpaced everybody in the league. To put it in perspective, Aaron Rodgers was the MVP last year, throwing 48 touchdown passes. The difference between Aaron Rodgers and number two in the NFL was about 12 touchdown passes. The difference between Marino and the next guy on the list was about 20. Wow. So in or, so just, just the gap was massive, right? And the thing is, imagine in Rodgers' day and age to uh, lead the NFL in passing yards, you know, uh, you know, in today's NFL, the gap between Marino and the next guy, uh, a modern NFL quarterback would have to throw for 6,600 passing yards in a season. That's how big of a gap it was between Marino and everybody else. He outpaced everybody. We've never seen a dominant quarterback compared to the rest of the league, the way Marino was in that 1984 season. And I doubt we ever will again. The number two offense in NFL history on my list is the 2007 New England Patriots. So this was another Randy Moss uh, special. This is where he broke the record for receiving touchdowns in a year. But this was really the first time that we saw Tom Brady with just elite weapons, right? He had, he had had won three Super Bowls with good receivers, but he had never had great talent around him. They had Wes Welker on that team. They obviously had Moss. They were just ridiculous. So they had, they had Brady, who was you know very accurate, great decisions, moved the chains, obviously going to score a lot of points, making a lot of good decisions with the football. And then they had Randy Moss, who, like I said, was just faster and could jump better, better athlete than anybody on the football field by far. And with that awesome combination of Brady's game management, accuracy and decision-making and Moss's pure athletic ability, unmatched in NFL history, they went 16-0. and Brady broke the record for touchdown passes in a season. Moss broke the record for receiving touchdowns in the NFL season. They fell just short in the Super Bowl, a heartbreaking loss. This was still a record-breaking offense and number two on my list. And now the number one uh, offense in NFL history for me is the 1999 St. Louis Rams, the greatest show on turf. Kurt Warner, Marshall Falk, Torrey Holt, Isaac Bruce, uh, they just absolutely were, were the first offense to deploy three wide receiver sets and be that explosive and aggressive all of the time. So this was still back in the time period where teams, if they were backed up, they'd want to run the ball, throw short passes, play it safe. Not the Rams with Mike Martz as their offensive coordinator. They took shots from everywhere. This was a team that they get eight yards on first down and they throw a bomb on second and two, third and two, throw another bomb. They didn't care. They were so aggressive and teams didn't know how to counter it. They spread teams out, opened up running lanes for Marshall Falk. He was also an unbelievable weapon in the passing game. He was the second guy in NFL history to have a thousand yards rushing and a thousand yards passing in an NFL season. I mean, this, this team was so great on offense. Uh, 
Kurt Warner basically had a Hall of Fame career essentially because of his short time with the Rams and the greatest show on turf. They ended the season with a Super Bowl win against the Tennessee Titans. You know, Torrey Holt and Isaac Bruce will probably find themselves in the Hall of Fame one day. Marshall Falk already is. Kurt Warner already is, like I said. I, you know, in my mind, this was the first offense to really bring in just absolute don't care, explosive. We'll throw the ball all over the yard. We'll take shots all the time. You know, just an absolutely uh, unbelievable and, and just a really lightning fast, you know, modern NFL offense. And I have them at number one. That's the 1999 St. Louis Rams. And my honorable mention, they kind of just missed the cut for me. This was tough. 2004 Indianapolis Colts. I think what was really special about this Colts team is that they were sort of the 2007 Patriots before the Patriots, right? They still ran the ball with Edron James. They had Marvin Harrison. They had Brandon Stokely. They had Dallas Clark. They had Reggie Wayne. They had weapons everywhere. Uh, but they, they, they just – the NFL rules hadn't quite helped them out yet. They were still fighting those aggressive Patriots with all the hand chucking and the five yards and the physical corners that kind of hurt them in the playoffs. I think if this Colt, that Colts team plays five years later, they're, they're legendary because they were so good. This was Peyton Manning at the peak of his athletic powers, and he knew that offense ran by Tom Moore like anybody's business. They were so balanced. Just so tough to stop. They blew teams out when they were on fire, but just they just were a few years early, right? The rules hadn't quite caught up to where they were allowed to execute the way teams in the future would be able to, but still a great offense. I remember watching them shred teams on Thanksgiving Detroit Lions. I remember them blowing out the Broncos, you know, 45 to 21 or something ridiculous in a playoff game, and the Broncos were really good. I, this was a very memorable offense to watch. That's why I have them as my uh, honorable mention. It's great. There's a lot of crazy crazy offenses on that list um yeah i hope none of our listeners find our our list too offensive by the way yeah you know it's almost sinful for you to put patriots at number two there i think some people might be cussing but uh uh, my list is different than yours as always but i think it's also a very good list let's start off my number five the 2016 atlanta falcons uh, this was an offense that at the time, they uh, at the ending of the season, they were second in the NFL at yards per game, averaging over 415 yards a game. Uh, their third, uh, almost 300 passing yards a game, uh, 120 rushing yards a game, ranked fifth. First for 34 points a game average. It's pretty insane to average 34 points a game. Um, uh, this is this is offense. With Matt Ryan, uh, Devonta Freeman, Julio Jones, uh, there's a bunch of other like Tevin Coleman's here, and he played a big part. Um, this was just an incredible offense for the Falcons. Uh, I they they couldn't get it done in the way of Super Bowls or anything like that. But um, th- this offense is very prolific, and I think this was like the light the last light years of uh the Matt Ryan Julio Jones era. So it's kind of special to me to see, you know, like this was the last time they were like truly, truly elite together before, before the duo separated. Uh, number four for me going, going a little back 1989 San Francisco 49ers. You could really pick almost any 49ers team with Steve Young or Joe Montana, but this was, uh, a special one. This had Roger Craig at the running back who rushed for over a thousand yards. So that's pretty impressive. You know, running for a thousand yards. That's great. That's great. But, uh, 
but he also was like got 500 receiving yards. Joe Montana's there. He's slinging the football around, doing great things there as well. I believe um, this was one of his last years before Steve Young came in. Um, Jerry Rice is there. He had over almost 1,500 receiving yards that season, uh, 17 touchdowns. But then on top of Jerry Rice, they had another Pro Bowl receiver, John Taylor, who had almost 1,100 receiving yards, 10 touchdowns. To have two guys getting that, like your tight ends getting 500 receiving yards, they were slinging the ball all over the park. This was one of the greater offenses that I was never able to see, but that I can remember in recent history. My number three, and this is one that I have seen, is the 2011 New Orleans Saints. 2011 was a great year for offenses. It was a great year for prolific offenses. We'll, we'll dive into that a little bit later. But uh, this Saints offense was really something special. Uh, Drew Brees as the captain of this offense, and I'm going to tell you some other parts of it. There's one part in particular that I would like to look at. So Drew Brees was here. He's doing great. They have Mark Ingram and Pierre Thomas and Chris Ivory as their, their primary running backs. Those guys are all great. You know, you got Jimmy Graham, as always, top-tier Pro Bowl tight end. You know, he's getting 1,300 receiving yards, 11 touchdowns. You got Marquise Colston, another great wide receiver they have, 1,200 receiving yards, about eight touchdowns. The part that I would really like to show here, this is what really made them special, Darren Sproles, running back and return man for the New Orleans Saints. You know, not only was Sproles running for 600 yards and four touchdowns, he was receiving for 700 yards and seven touchdowns, and he was returning kicks as well. I think he was truly you got you cannot miss guys like that in offenses. Like if you pass those guys up, they're gonna bite you every time. Darren Sproles was truly the one of the most special parts of this offense that people never really remembered, uh, because he wasn't even nominated to the Pro Bowl that year. And if you're having almost a thousand yards rushing, a thousand yards receiving and like almost 20 touchdowns, how are you not getting to the Pro Bowl? I think that's kind of crazy. Um, My number two, another 2011 offense. 2011 Green Bay Packers. Aaron Rodgers does it again. We talked about how great he was early. He's probably going to win MVP again this season. Uh, back-to-back MVPs for him. Uh, But this Green Bay offense, this was the year I believe they went to the Super Bowl. Or was it this year or was it the year after? So it was the year after. This was the year they got upset. Uh, they went 15-1 and one this year, but they got upset in the playoffs by the Giants. And that that loss actually is what Rodgers and, and guys like A.J. Hawk said motivated them because they were killing everybody this year, like you said, um, in 2011. But they kind of they kind of let their guard down in the playoffs and got upset. But they used that to motivate their championship next uh, the following year in 2012. So this was the year, but I think this year especially, maybe they didn't really – have it quite together yet, and they need just that extra spark, like you said. But this was a great offense. You got obviously got Aaron Rodgers, one of the greatest to ever do it. You have uh, Greg Jennings, one of the one of the, this trio of wide receivers was great. You got Greg Jennings, um, you got Jordy Nelson, uh, you got Randall Cobb. But another key part we are not looking at. John Kuhn, one of the greatest fullbacks to ever play the game, is the anchor of this offense. If you ask anyone on that team, I think they'll tell you he's one of the greatest players they've ever played with. 
John Kuhn could catch the ball, he could run the ball, he could score touchdowns either way, but he was an elite blocker and a big part of this offense. I think he really opened the holes for Ryan Grant and James Starks to you know get the ball moving. Uh, those were really their only two guys that they had uh, running the ball. But this is a great offense. And it carried over to the next year, but this is the year that you know you got three, four Pro Bowl guys on this offense right here, and it was very, very special. But nonetheless, they weren't my number one because my number one offense was another Peyton Manning-led offense, but not the one that you were talking about. This is the 2013 Denver Broncos. This offense, I was looking at the stats earlier, just mulling over some stuff. It was crazy. No Sean Moreno rushed for like almost uh, 1,100 yards, uh, 600 yards receiving. Monty Ball, Ronnie Hillman, all those guys were great running backs on that team. Peyton Manning, incredible passing numbers that year. But they had like a ton of guys on uh, the receiving court who all were incredible. You have Demarius Thomas, 1,500 receiving yards almost. Uh, 14 touchdowns. Eric Decker, uh, 1,300 receiving yards. So 1,500, 1,300, 11 touchdowns. Wes Welker, 780 receiving yards, 10 touchdowns. Julius Thomas, 788 touchdowns, 12 or 788 yards, 12 touchdowns. And then you remember guys like uh, you remember Virgil Green who came in after Julius Thomas. Uh, that guy kind of popped a little bit a few years after that. They had so many pass-catching weapons on this team, and they all produced. It's incredible that Peyton Manning's able to spread the ball and give everyone stellar numbers that year. Uh, this was truly one of the most dynamic offenses I've ever seen. Uh, I remembered it because they like hung seven touchdowns on the Ravens one of the games that year, so I knew it was going to be something uh, to not be sniffed at. I believe they did go to the Super Bowl, but they lost to the Seahawks, I believe. Yeah, you're right. And and it's it's funny story about that. I remember they played Baltimore opening night. We were obviously uh at school together at the time and they Peyton Manning put seven up on the Ravens. And I was I was kind of laughing. I'm like, oh boy, that's what an embarrassment for the Ravens. That's so bad. And then they the Denver actually played Dallas that year and, and beat them fifty one to forty eight. So you know. you know, at least you scored forty eight. We yeah, didn't well. really score much. <laughs> uh Denver Denver was crazy that year. Um it was truly a sight to behold. I'm not bitter. I'm not saying that they're number one just because they could hang seven touchdowns on uh, Baltimore's stellar defense, but uh, maybe that is what I'm saying. And finally, my honorable mention. I'm surprised you didn't mention them because I think it's a team that really doesn't get the credit because they never got the wins. The 1990 Buffalo Bills. You got Jim Kelly. Uh, you got uh, Andre... I can't remember what his last name was. Reed. Andre Reed. Why Andre Reed. Reed. Uh, th- this is just a crazy, crazy offense. This was the, uh, right about the time. Uh, Thurman Thomas was another crazy, crazy running back that they had. Uh, th- and this is the time that the Bills went to all of those Super Bowls and they could never quite win anything. Um, this offense, though, uh, another great offense. I really was impressed. I like to look, focus on different aspects of stuff. 1,300 rushing yards, quite a lot of rushing yards, 11 touchdowns, but you also coupled with 600 receiving yards. That's almost 2,000 all-purpose yards. I mean, that's pretty impressive to me personally when you see numbers like that. So Jim Kelly was obviously a great quarterback, and uh, Andre Reid was a great receiver. 
But uh, this this is my honorable mention of the top five offenses. Yeah, that's that's a good list. So the Bills the Bills reference is great because there's two things about it, right? Is they were they called it the K gun was their offense, and it was one of the first really no huddle offenses that were very successful and went to the Super Bowl four times, obviously. But this offense, it was it was legendary. They were actually big favorites against the Giants in the Super Bowl that year. Um, but that was the year that made Bill Belichick a household name because he was a defensive coordinator for the, the Giants at the time. And he came up with the game plan that limited that offense and allowed the Giants to win that in a big upset. So I think the only reason we have to put up with Patriots fans to this day all of the time is because the Bills couldn't beat the Giants on that Super Bowl Sunday. So that's why I can't list the Bills on my list, because every time I think of that team, I think about you're the reason we have to look at the Patriots and Bill Belichick. If only they could have adapted. If only they could have found a way. So these are good lists. I think this was fun. Uh, there's so many options that it's it's easy to get go wide and catch that net and bring in a lot of different teams. A lot of great players. When I'm looking back, I'm like, oh, I forgot. I forgot Sean Marino even played football. 2013, he was out of the league like two years later. Uh, so it was pretty crazy looking back. Uh, I forgot Eric Decker. I forgot a lot of guys. You know, they, I, for, I remembered them, but I forgot how good they were in their primes. Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. Um, That's about it, except I know you always ask me one thing every time I say that's about it. Uh, do we want to look at the Thursday night game? Sure. We're going to go Dallas, New Orleans. Uh, both teams are beat up with a lot of injuries. It's it's going to be a weird one. I'm going to give just the slightest of edges to New Orleans because it's in New Orleans. But this game could go any one of 50 ways with COVID issues with Dallas, injuries with New Orleans. Uh, it's uh, It depends on who actually shows up to the game Thursday uh, on the field for both teams. I'm going just because New Orleans is at home. I'm going New Orleans. But I mean, this game's a mystery to me. I'm saying it's going to be Dallas by 30 points. I, it could be, I doubt it, but it could be just because it's again, I, both teams are missing a lot of guys. Someone coming back, it's just gonna, it's. I think it's gonna be a weird game to watch. I definitely say that. I'm also calling two picks by Trayvon Diggs off of Taysom Hill. I, I, I like that. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take that pick. So I, I gotta get instill some confidence, Nick. Dallas is gonna win this one. Gotta believe. I think they can do it. Dak is finally gonna find the spark. I know they. I read they mentioned uh, Zeke is going to have a huge load in this game. The whole game is going to be on his shoulders. But hopefully this maybe gets the running game going back in Dallas. Maybe they can find the spark that they need. Yeah, Elliott's been beat up. He's had a knee injury for a while. So, But hopefully he can uh, – they've been kind of trying to load manage him a little bit. Hopefully he can get back to full speed. But we'll see. It'll be, a, it'll be an interesting game. Anyways, uh, that's it. That's the show. Uh, anything else that you would like to say to the people, Nick? No, and the, thanks to everyone who tuned in to watch us and, and anyone who's still watching us. We really appreciate it. You know, this is this is our second live show. We're really always trying to improve and make a better show for you guys. So we appreciate all the comments in the live chat. And if you want to comment in the video, please do. We appreciate the feedback and the conversation with all of our listeners. Um, like we talk about all the time, we are not a big sports media show. We don't have the big budgets, don't have the fancy suits, don't have the hot takes. But we got to make up for it by working really hard, doing our research, and like we always say, being ridiculously good looking. Great. If you want more of us, which we appreciate, you know, you can find us on YouTube, a Saturday morning inspection. Uh, we are on podcasts, wherever you look for podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
Find us on our website, smishow.com, or on Twitter and Facebook at SMI Football Show. However you can find us, watch us. Please like, comment, subscribe. We appreciate all you guys. We make the best shows that we can for you. Um, as always, I'm Nick Rudman, joined by the man who is no, uh, never without a hairbrush, Andrew Mize. Mize, any final thoughts? Yes, and I'd like to bring up one quick thing. Uh, we've had a lot of growth lately. So get in now. Be one of the be one of the ones who is there. You can say I was there. Uh, I was there before the show got a hundred thousand viewers, uh, a million subscribers. Uh, you want to get in early on an investment like this. You're doubling down on our success because we're gonna put in the work. We already do. We're better than any other talk show out there that's even close to the level that we are at. Our production value second to none. So get in early, and that's all I have to say. We have a great week of football coming up. We have another great show coming out later this week. And we will see you there.